You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, produced by University FM. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with Bob Sutton, who is a professor at the Engineering School here at Stanford University, also the author of, gosh, lots of books, well, author and co-author of a lot of books. Most recent book is called The Friction Project, co-authored with Huggy Rao. Huggy Rao, yeah. Yeah, and you did another book with him, right? Scaling Up Excellence. Scaling Up Excellence. This is almost the sequel. Yeah. A little different. It's one of the books that I actually don't have with me, but I have probably, I think you said this is the one that's hit now a million copies, right? For obvious reasons. It's called The No Asshole Rule. I got rewarded for talking dirty, unfortunately, (laughs) yes. Yeah, building a civilized workplace and surviving one that isn't. And I think it's related to this one, of course, Good Boss, Bad Boss. And then you've got a couple of others. This one, of course, Weird Ideas That Work. That was a, a lot of fun. And then you got these two that you co-authored with Jeff Pfeffer. Pfeffer, yes. Yeah. Jeff taught me how to write books, and then I rebelled against him. <laughs> well, and then I know that you bounce a lot of ideas off of him. This one's Hard Facts, Dangerous Half-Truths and Total Nonsense, All About Evidence-Based Management and the Knowing Doing Gap, How Smart Companies Turn Knowledge into Action. That's book 24 years old. Anyway. Well, let's go from the beginning all the way to the end. I mean, in the beginning, you wrote this book called The Knowing Doing Gap, and now you write this book on the Friction Project. And I think the thing that puzzles me about this Friction Project is the Knowing Doing Gap. Because, Uh you know, when I was reading through this, I'm like, yeah, I mean, doesn't everybody know that these things exist? I mean, you tell the stories and everybody can identify them. I can't think of a single person that doesn't have examples that come to mind. I mean, every single type of friction, right? good or bad, that you mentioned, I can immediately diagnose in my own organization. Yeah, in, in my own organization. Right? <laughs> I know. You, you got tenure, so you can reference all the oh, yeah, ones. Yeah, I will right? reference them, yeah. Right? But it doesn't seem, at least to the people who are part of these organizations, like that things are being done about them, right? And awareness is not enough. Like, what is the big well, well, friction? Well, 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 I love that because that's you're starting with almost like the meta question of right. almost the whole behavioral sciences, Yeah, which, which is there's plenty of disagreement about what ought to be done, mm-hmm. but there's also plenty of agreement. So why doesn't it happen? Mm-hmm. And you're the first person to ask me to start with the last one and, and to start with the first one and end with the last one. And I haven't read The Knowing Doing Gap in a while, so you probably read it more recently than I have. <laughs> probably part of your background operating system. So Maybe. But in The Knowing Doing Gap, we talk about a lot of the things that lead to inaction, even when people know what should be done. Everything from being rewarded for doing things that are contrary to the good of the system to being rewarded for smart talk mm-hmm. rather than smart action. And then history, one of the classic things, well, we do it because we have always done it. We do talk about some related causes of bad friction and also causes of having too little friction, too, because sometimes there's too little friction. It's it's too easy. I mean, one of the things that's a friction problem is that it's too easy to add initiatives, to add people in organizations. Maybe that should be harder to do because that ultimately Mm -hmm. causes bad friction. But I hate to be optimistic. I'm not a natural optimist, although I am more optimistic than my co-author, Jeff Pfeffer, Mm -hmm. who's a pretty grumpy guy. But one of the things about the Friction Project is I think more so than any project I've ever worked on is that I became actually fairly optimistic Mm. that there was some hope. And so I think that's why the book has so many tools in it. And I do have my moments when I say, oh, my goodness, what can I do? But I, I think organizations sometimes do make themselves better. Well, you know, I was talking to John Roberts recently, and he did that controlled experiment in India where you had the management consultants come in and give them some advice. Uh-huh. And the problem is, how do you explain the continued persistence of these really bad management practices? Uh-huh. And so one would think that in a highly competitive market... Uh-huh. The organizations that have all these dysfunctions would more or less go extinct. Is it just that these things persist because of market imperfections, because of... Well, I don't like that word, Mark, because the team, the term market <laughs> seems to suggest there's this efficient selection system. Mm-hmm. and but, but what the efficient selection system does is it kills off a group of organizations which get replaced by organizations that are filled with humans, just like the same mm-hmm. organizations that were eliminated. They might be slightly better. But there's certain things that human beings have, I mean, one of the chapters in the the Friction Project is about subtraction. Well, well, one of the the problems that we have, and also one of the reasons that we seem to have survived as a species, is we as human beings have a natural tendency to add stuff 
to mm-hmm. hoard stuff almost, like food for the winter, blah, blah, blah. But then when you get in an organizational setting, well, well, that becomes a double-edged sword because we start adding more procedures, more technologies, more people. Yeah. We're sitting in the Graduate School of Business, which, which I have a courtesy appointment here, and they're very courteous to me. But my God, they have so many administrators. It's just <laughs> staggering. I, I, I'll tell you a little story about that, which gets to coordination. I have a courtesy appointment here, which means they're nice to me. But at various times, I've had office here. So at one point, I had office in the business school for five years. So I deal with the technology stuff. And it was a great deal because I didn't have to do anything. I said in the office, I could hang out with my friends. I didn't have to teach or anything. And whenever I had a technology problem at the business school, I would write a note and the person would tell me they were the wrong person. And eventually, they'd get to the ninth administrator mm. whose job it was to fix my particular problem. In my little department, management, science, and engineering, we had and have only one tech person. Mm -hmm. So he can't say it's somebody else's problem. He just has to fix it, and he figures out a way to fix it. So that's the classic, the the problem was was sort of addition. But to go back to the optimism, in the course of the Friction Project in particular, we ran into all sorts of organizations that got rid of bad friction and also even use good friction to get rid of bad yeah. friction. So I'm weirdly optimistic. I, I might be more optimistic than I have been in my career, even though there are some major problems in the world, for example. <laughs> well, I mean, do you think that there ought to be some kind of internal auditing process? I've always thought that there ought to be someone who's you know, job it is to uh, be like, I mean, there's an addition, <laughs> but to have someone who's like the, you know, the chief efficiency officer, or chief process officer, I forget who I was talking to, but organizational design is so important. Uh-huh. But when you look at all the various C roles, like who's in charge of it? Nobody's in charge. Well, of well, it. well so, I mean, that, that's an interesting, an interesting point. Uh, some organizations do have like a Hootsuite had a czar of bad systems mm-hmm. who actually did make some improvements. And then believe me, every major consulting firm is willing to, and ha- more than happy to come in and to do, if you tell them you want an audit to get, yeah. they, they will do it for you. Mm-hmm. But my perspective in the sort of like the language we use in the book is that all good leaders and also people throughout organizations, they're friction fixers. They see themselves as trustees of others' time. Yeah. And they're also organized, and that includes being an organizational designer. And I think that, let's start with, I don't like the idea of it having it being somebody else's problem. I think that the best leaders are friction fixers and that's how they act. And, you know, one of the people we celebrate in the book, Satya Nadella Mm. at Microsoft, I mean, he really sees himself as an organizational designer. And one reason that at least Microsoft has been one of my main clients through the pandemic, one of the reasons I think things have gotten better at Microsoft, which by the way, in the engineering school, nobody can still quite believe yeah, because right. I, I, I find it hard to believe. I mean, it used to be that HP was the employer was of choice. Mm-hmm. Then it was Facebook. Then it was, I mean, then it was Google. Then it was Facebook. You just go, whatever the latest, the latest darling is. And how we got back to Microsoft is the most bewildering thing. I've People in computer science are confused, but mm-hmm. they want to work there. And a lot of the changes, I mean, certainly there's been strategic changes around AI and stuff most recently, but Satya made fundamental changes in a culture, the Steve Ballmer culture, which the way he got ahead was stabbing people in the back or in the front. It's just as fine too. It was, I win, you lose culture. Everybody was your enemy and you stomped on them on the way to the top. And Satya changed the reward system, changed the language. He actually, they don't, they won't talk about this much publicly, but they got rid of a lot of people. A lot of assholes. Well, a lot, well yeah, and <laughs> assholes that were uh, amazing. And yeah. in uh, 2014, right after we finished Scaling Up Excellence, I gave a talk to the operating systems group. Mm-hmm. And I'm talking to this engineer and uh, he shows me the Microsoft phone. And, and he said, oh, this thing, it, it might not have been so bad, but it was a real failure. And he said, one of the reasons that it failed was that there was just so dysfunctional, mm-hmm. so much dysfunctional internal competition. And us in the operating systems group, for example, wouldn't help them very much. And I said, well, what about Apple? And he said, oh, well, we didn't hate Apple. We just hated <laughs> the people in the other group because we're that's how we're at Microsoft. We hate yeah. each other more than the outside. In that culture... The one, one Microsoft, the definition of a superstar has changed at Apple, at Microsoft from people who help others get ahead rather than people who, who you know, treat their coworkers as enemies. And, and, and I think that to go back to the, the CEO as organizational designer, Satya has made a whole bunch of changes. You use the term 
organizational operating system mm-hmm. in the organization's operating system, and everybody gets it. There's been a lot of turnover too, but there's also been a lot of change in people at Microsoft who've been there 25, 30 years who change their behavior because the you don't get ahead by openly sort of treating other people as enemies. And to me, and this, this is our chapter dealing with coordination problems yeah. and weaving things together, is that's almost like table stakes. If we view one another as enemies, it's really hard for us to cooperate and help the other person succeed. I mean, there's other problems that need to be fixed, including siloism, given the name of this adventure that you're involved in, which is an important problem and that we do, do talk about tackling. But it's if you view people as your competition when they should be your friends, then you're in trouble. Yeah, I mean, I particularly like that whole chapter about how you can facilitate coordination across different domains. And you talked about the cancer tax. I was just talking about that. And I have a someone I know who had cancer at oh. Stanford Medical. And th- they would have appointments at 9 a.m. and another appointment at 5 p.m. And they'd have to sit around for eight hours in the hospital and stuff like that. And one of the proposals that you, you talk about is understanding exactly the value of time. So time and effort. But I remember I was at a meeting with the staff and the administration back at Berkeley. And one of the things I proposed, I said, does everybody know the value of everybody's time, right? What's the dean's time's worth? What's the assistant dean's time's worth? What's the professor time worth? What's student time worth? And, and I remember get, just getting this empty stare, like we don't, we don't, we don't think about that stuff, right? And, and as far as I know, nobody thinks about that stuff. And, so, 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 uh, so I went to Cal. I'm a, I, I'm a loyal Cal grad. I actually, the big football game the, that we just had, the big game, I still work, root for Cal. I was there for three or four years, and I've been here 40 years, but I still, so I'm very loyal to Cal. And I also married the dean's daughter. His, his <laughs> signature's in my diploma. He became the provost. His name, Rod Park, the late mm-hmm. Rod Park. And Rod was really, he was a very tough-minded kind of guy. And, and he used to always say that the more senior a faculty gets and the closer he or she is to death, the less value they place on time. They act like there's absolutely <laughs> unlimited time. And he said, it's one of those things in some ways he never really quite understood in a university setting is that uh, the people have more time. They act like, you know, young, they, and they used to say young man or young woman in a hurry. And then, and as us old farts get, older and older, we just act like there's unlimited amounts of time. Mm-hmm. Um, right. no, and so I think there's also, a, and this is not a criticism of Berkeley, it's the same of every no, university. I think it's, I think it's, it's a cultural problem. I think it's true at a lot of organizations. And if you reverse engineer uh-huh. the way the organization's price time, if you want to back out the shadow price, it's all over the map, right? You can have one part of the organization which says, oh, we can't do that because we've hit our... right." labor constraint, essentially. In other right, words, right, right. The, co- the cost of labor is infinite. And then you can go over to the IT group and you say, well, how do you evaluate the ROI on an IT investment? Right, right. They say, well, since labor's free, we, we don't really, you know. <laughs> so you can have one part of the organization that views labor as right. free, another one that views it as an infinite cost. And so, you know, why don't organizations have some more explicit pricing of people's time? I know there was an extension for, uh, for Google Meet, where whenever there was a, a, a meeting, or maybe it was on Zoom, the, the price of the meeting would pop up. Oh, right? no, that's pretty cool. That that, that's pretty yeah. cool. Well, I, I mean, so so I, I do think that is one of the solutions. And there's different sorts of costs. So that's financial costs. Obviously, the more yeah. people are in the meeting, what is it? And the more expensive they are, and the longer it is, the more that it costs. But the one of the problems there is, to me, is perverse incentives, which is mm. that, that, let's just take it, your team, the bigger your team is in most organizations, I think this applies to most universities, and I know it applies in the real world, is that is that the more people report to you, the more you get paid. Mm-hmm. So you end up with these sort of giant meetings. But one of the kind of disciplines, and, and, if you, and by the way, if you look at the turnaround going way back to Luke Gerstner at IBM, to some of the norms that they had at Pixar, we spent a lot of time talking to Ed Catmill, who was president of Pixar for some 30 years about this too, that this, one of the skills, and this is back to organizational design, one of the the skills that great leaders do is it's not just who's in the room, it's who's out of the room. Mm -hmm. And just as as an example, we talked with Ed a lot about the brain trust are the set of people who, when you're developing a movie, you pitch your ideas Mm -hmm. to them or you show them your dailies. And there are usually other directors, assistant directors and so forth, people with technical skill in, in making a film. And it isn't just that you want to keep that group relatively small. There are certain people he would keep out of there. And, and mm-hmm. two of the groups he talked about on the extreme 
because he was, Ed was president, but Steve Jobs was CEO and, and he literally owned the company until he sold it to Disney. And he said, we'd keep Steve out, both because he doesn't know that much about making movies and also because he's an intimidating force. Mm -hmm. And the other people we would keep out who always wanted to be in the room were the people who sold the merch, the mm -hmm. people from, they were from Disney. People like in the little cars for the Cars movies and everything, we would keep them out because they would push us to develop movies that had really cool merch to sell. And, you know, like an, an example of a great movie that had terrible merch was Ratatouille. I mean, mm -hmm. did people want to buy pet rats for their kids? <laughs> I mean, Ratatouille created, or Wally's mm -hmm. another example, created no really useful um, merchandise compared to the Cars movies. In the car, in people within Pixar, you know, to tell tales out of school, most of them will say they don't think that Cars are the greatest movies, but boy, did they sell merchandise for six-year-old kids. So. Well, I think you talked about the cookie lickers. Oh. Right? <laughs> I love that metaphor. You know, these people who just sort of, I think of them as little, you know, dogs peeing all over the place <laughs> and saying, okay, this, this is... This is my turn. Back off. Stay in your lane. And then they don't necessarily do anything with it. Yeah. Right? So, so that, that's a classic. That's sometimes a structural problem and sometimes it's a personality problem. Yeah. And, and a cookie licker in this was Microsoft speak, <laughs> but it's also all over the place. So a cookie licker is somebody who says dibs on anything mm -hmm. from I have to be involved in the process. I have to make the decision. My team is the mm -hmm. one who's going to develop this. And then they sit on it. And nothing happens. And the analogy is little kids licking all the cookies so nobody else can, yeah. can eat them. And one of my, one of the examples that always struck me, and we talk about another element of the book, is that in the early days of Google, and in fact, Jeff Effer and I interviewed him about this in 2002. I still have the tape. Mm. Larry Page had a really clear perspective about how important the people were who were interviewed mm -hmm. at, um, at, um, and hired at Google. And, um, and he would insist in being involved in every interview it, yeah. uh, until the company had about a thousand people, which is just nuts, which it made sense for the first hundred or 200, but a thousand people, he was the cookie licker who was stalling things out. And, and even by the time Google was a thousand, maybe 2000, it wasn't the coolest company in the Valley. And still he would slow down the process. People would get frustrated. They go to mm -hmm. other companies. So that's a classic example of cookie licking that used to make sense and didn't make sense as the company got older. The the other story, it's funny to pivot on Larry Page, the, the other story, which is might be my favorite story in the book because it captures almost everything about friction in one short story, is that, uh, and, 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 and Jeff and I have this on tape in 2002 when we interviewed him, Larry Page was saying, and the way he put it is, a lot of people in computer science at Stanford don't like me because I've interviewed them or we've interviewed them eight, 10, 12, 15 right. times and still not given an offer. And they're really frustrated, but I want to build the company with people who are great technically and also have the leadership skill to build a company. Uh, Marissa Mayer was sort of the poster child of this. Those are the people that I want. And, and he was talking about that. So then the company gets larger and this tradition, so this is why people add friction, persists. And Laszlo Bach, who was essentially head of HR, they called it something else there for people operations, pe people operations. Yeah. That's, what a term for about 10 years. He ran into this problem and what he did. And I've fact checked with him with this multiple times. I still don't quite believe it's true. And he said that they do eight, 10, 12. And, and I remember when I was fact checking, this was the first time I put this in the Wall Street Journal. He said, that's right. I once ran into a case of 25 interviews before they gave somebody an mm -hmm. offer, 25 interviews for an engineer. And so that's bad friction because you think about it, well, all the time that it's taking of all the people just multiply how many interviews are done and not to mention pissing off the candidates who don't get jobs or do get jobs and mm -hmm. are still pissed off because they had to do 25 interviews. So he put in just a little friction, a little speed bump, which was if you're going to do more than four interviews, you need written permission from me, executive vice president, Laszlo Bach. Mm -hmm. And he said the speed at which it plummeted was just amazing. And, and that, that to me, if, if, if I wanted to tell one story about good and bad friction in the whole book, mm -hmm. that might be it because it shows that friction is both good and bad. Yeah. I remember I, I talked to a bunch of people at Google. I think it was probably a little bit after that. Uh, and they said that a lot of the decisions, it used to be that everybody who was involved had uh, to give some kind of uh, affirmative assent. Yeah, yeah, say. yeah. And then they just made a simple switch, which was, Unless somebody makes an affirmative dissent, the proposal would go through. And so just that simple shift in the default 
move things along much more quickly. Well, right? that, I mean, that, that's interesting. On the other hand, maybe it should have been harder for Google to hire people. I think they hired <laughs> way too many people. Right. So maybe they needed some other friction in some other ways, too. Well, I mean, I think it, <clears throat> probably you have to think about the entire process, right? Uh-huh. So if it's hard to fire people, then you have to make it harder to hire people. And if it's easier to fire people, then you can kind of make it easier to hire people. Well, that, right? that's why it's much easier to hire lawyers at Stanford than it is to hire faculty members. Yeah, right. Oh, oh the, oh the, and, and I know our head lawyer, her name is uh, Debbie Zumwalt. I've known her for 40 years. Mm-hmm. And she's a great lawyer, but it still is easier to hire a lawyer at Stanford. And the number of lawyers, percentage of lawyers of the campus has, has increased much higher than the percentage of faculty in the 40 years I've been here. Faculty has gone up like that much and lawyers like that much. Yeah, it's like the, the junk DNA, right? <laughs> I could think of it that <laughs> well, way. Well, we, we do need some lawyers. We're going to keep on the friction project, but I think it does tie back in part to the discussion of assholes, right? I mean, and so... I think all of us know them. All all of us have unfortunately had to work for them or work alongside them. But, you know, one would think, particularly with the publication of the book and and a million Mm. copies sold, we we would see fewer assholes. I mean, is there an assholeometer out there? Well, I don't don't know if there's an (laughs) assholeometer, but we should talk about the definition of asshole because to me an asshole is somebody who leaves people feeling demeaned, disrespected, and so forth. And that's a behavior it's not, it certainly has maybe some personality elements to it, but if you, whether you look at personality and or environment, I think that our genetics have not changed very much since mm-hmm. 2007. And in G, some organizations have done some things, some legal to get rid of the absolute mm-hmm. worst behavior. But if I look at the situational causes that lead people to act like jerks, they're either the same or worse. So it isn't a surprise to me that there's been little change in the asshole problem in organizations. So, um, Well, so in other words, we can all fall prey to the fundamental attribution error, right? So there are people that behave like assholes, which is sort of a Mm -hmm. rational response to the incentives that they're given. And then maybe there are people that are just uncorrectable, right? Some people are uncorrectable. They're sociopaths and narcissists and so forth. But on the other hand, a socially skilled narcissist knows when to turn their assholeness on on and off. Those are the people who, who tend to get ahead. But I would go through, so what are some of the characteristics that lead people to turn into jerks? One is being in a hurry. Mm-hmm. Well, so the pressure to rush, 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 mm-hmm. even when it doesn't make any sense in many organizations has increased or at least stayed the same. Another one is sleep deprivation. Mm-hmm. I mean, if people are exhausted, they're tired, it's not like those things have gone away. And then the other thing that happens and the other problem with assholeness is, and these are all things that be can be produced in the lab easily, is that it's, a, it's very contagious. Negative mm-hmm. behaviors are more contagious than positive behaviors. And so all those things there, oh, and gee, by the way, when there's power differences in organizations, when people are powerful or objectively powerful or feel powerful, they focus more on their own needs, they focus less on the needs of others, and they act like the rules don't apply to them. And there's lots of studies that when they make people the boss, they start, including by Deb Grunfeld here at, at the Stanford Business School, but and Dr. Keltner at Berkeley is another person who's done a lot of research on this. But all you got to do is look at some really cool studies by Dr. Keltner's students with the cars at yeah. Berkeley. And essentially, this is like at a four-way intersection, the more expensive the car, the less likely the car is to stop for pedestrians and other motorists who have the right-of-way. Because you feel powerful, the rules don't apply right. to me. And so all those factors are still present or stronger. So even though my friend Jeff Pfeffer he says the same thing you do, although much less politely, that, uh, so Bob, how's, are things getting better since the no asshole rule? I would say they're the same or worse, but you know, it's because organizations are organizations and but humans I mean, are humans. But th- I mean, there's a difference between dominance or alpha status and an asshole, right? Yeah. yeah. We both, I mean, we were talking before the podcast about some of the leaders that that we admire. And I don't think you would say that those folks are not dominant or or not alpha, right? We're not like the primates entirely. To me, it's like a risk Mm -hmm. that comes with power. It's not guaranteed, but it is a risk that people Mm -hmm. in power do tend to act like the rules don't apply to them. And another thing that happens to people in power and we talk about this in uh, the Friction Project, is that essentially when you're in power, especially in larger complex organizations, 
you end up in the situations where there's, an, we call it an absence of inconvenience mm-hmm. that everybody else has to has yes. to sort of suffer from. Like you, you don't have any trouble finding a parking space. You have a private parking space, you have a private elevator. I, I, have no, I had no food. idea that GM was still doing this. I remember in 1992 in business school, I read a book about this, about how all the General Motors executives uh-huh. got new cars every six right. months. And it was, I couldn't believe it. Then I thought that Ross Perot came in and said, hey, no more of that. And then to find out that they were still doing it yeah, well, like 30 years later. Well, well, so yeah, I, and I, I fact checked. I found a GM executive who I knew pretty well who left about three or four years ago. And at least as of three years ago, and this is not just senior executives, it's down to sort of middle management level that essentially, uh, I think it's something like senior executives get a new car every three months and more junior folks mm-hmm. get one every six months. Oh, they keep changing the program slightly. But the main thing is you don't have to deal with trading it in. You don't deal with haggling with mm-hmm. it. You sort of pick your car, they bring you your car. And then in large facilities, there's gas and maintenance. So you don't have to deal with that part. There's, yeah. there, I, 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 as of three years ago, there was still free gas. Mm-hmm. A free gas, isn't it? So why would you care about gas mileage if you don't have to pay for uh, pumping at the pump? And that's literally the, the that this phrase, absence of inconvenience, mm-hmm. they're protected from it. And, and I'm not a fan of Elon Musk's, but my understanding is that if you work for Tesla, there's no discount. Mm-hmm. There's nothing easier. You have to do the same thing as everybody else, which I think is, I think that's good organizational mm-hmm. design, basically. Well, you talked about how you found out there's a VIP phone number for people who want to quit Comcast. Comcast. <laughs> like, like, I want, first of all, I want to get that number. But I had a similar experience with Business Week. I uh, had accidentally subscribed twice uh-huh. and they were billing me once through Apple and once through Facebook. And I realized that I'd been paying twice for two years uh-huh. after spending hours and hours trying to talk to somebody through online. I went to the head of digital marketing on uh, LinkedIn. <laughs> <laughs> I said, hey. This is crazy. And boom, it, those charges were reversed almost uh, immediately. And so uh, the it might be easy for me to just move on and say, this right. is great, but I find it important to to point this out because most people don't have that option. Yeah, well, yeah I, the experience with Comcast was I was having a terrible service problem and I eventually complained on Twitter, now X, and uh, there's a board member I know, a board member I met at a, in a McKinsey meeting. Yeah. So this is, unfortunately, this is like white privilege and all that sort of stuff. And magically, somebody contacted me and I got this number where I would call them, they'd answer on one ring. And, yeah. and then the immediate problem I had was solved. And I have a son who lives in San Francisco mm-hmm. and he needed like a new router. And I called them up and they went to his house. They did a house call. They didn't charge him for him. They didn't charge him for the new equipment like they're supposed to. It, it was beautiful. And the comparison we use to move towards optimism is that in the book, I talk about how, a personal story, how I went to the DMV, the California Department of Motor Vehicles. I was expecting to be terrible. And I got there at 7.30 and I was just, I had my day blocked out till 10 o'clock to do what I thought was a relatively complicated title change transaction. At 7.45, a guy walked up and down the line and asked all 50 of us what we were there for, if we needed, if he had... And he, and he gave us the form if we needed. He told some people, like one, mm. a woman in front of me was there to get a passport. They don't do passports. So he said, I'm really sorry. <laughs> this is the wrong agency. And he told her what agency to go to. And I was out of there by 820. And I couldn't, and I went to like six different mm. windows. I couldn't believe it. So I was talking about this to a group of executives recently. And a guy who works for California got in touch. He said, this is part of a whole systematic mm. effort to through technology, through culture, through redesign of line systems. They're timing people. Mm-hmm. You talk about the time value of money, they're timing people. They're trying to get the DMV employees to be more civilized to us and to one another. And so Huggy and I are, we're trying to figure out how to do a case study. In fact, on Friday, we're talking to the head of the DMV about mm-hmm. like, why are so things going so great? And to me, that's an example. People talk about government that it can't change, it's civil servants, blah, blah, blah. These people are really determined to improve the quality of the Department of Motor Vehicles. And from what I can tell, things seem to be getting better for citizens. Yeah. Well, so part of that is awareness. And all of us have been in situations where you are a customer or an uh, employee and you see a potential improvement, potential right, right, process improvement. Right. And I think a lot of times the problem is how do you communicate that idea to someone who can actually do something right. about it, right? And the mystery is then why aren't the people who are in a position to do something about it soliciting right, that right. sort of feedback, right? Because if one observes it, 
First of all, you have to figure out who's in charge. And then second of all, you have to presume that they're interested. And oftentimes they're not interested because they're busy eh. and they're being bombarded. So why is it that organizations don't have a more systematic way of soliciting well, I, I mean, that, that, I mean, I hate to be optimistic, <laughs> but th there are some examples that and it isn't just suggestive systems. I mean, one example from healthcare, which, you know, healthcare is so messed up. But one example from healthcare that we talk about in the book was mm -hmm. this, this Hawaii Pacific, which is the biggest healthcare system in Hawaii. There's a woman there, Dr. Melinda Ashton. And she got frustrated because electronic health records, we all know you go to electronic health records, they look at the screen rather than they look at us. And mm -hmm. there's all these studies that show that residents spend something like 60% of their time looking at the screen and 30% of their time looking at patients, things like that. Well, I mean, this is a job for Fred Taylor, right? Fred Taylor did this stuff 100 years ago, right? It's exactly, I think it is exactly Taylorism, but this is Taylorism with suggestion systems. So she had this get rid of stupid stuff effort and she got 200 suggestions about the first time, implemented about 88 of them. And, and they were little things, but they saved people lots of times. And yes, it is, you're right, it's Taylorism with a little bit of employee mm -hmm. participation. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. But, and then we also have an example of AstraZeneca where they did actually an international movement, both top down and bottom up to give employees back time. Mm -hmm. And that, according to their calculations, so I'm always a little skeptical, but that they said they saved 2 million hours. There are things that, that, that can be done, and I'm not completely mm -hmm. pessimistic that it's impossible to do. But in some ways, and we have the analogy in the book of mowing the lawn, to me in organizations, this might be the hard part, is where you have the discipline to keep doing it. And if I was going to pick two organizations and their competitors, that I think are pretty good at it, although I don't know why I want to work at either one, Walmart mm -hmm. and Amazon. Mm -hmm. They both have very good discipline about being very careful about using people's time and also uh, protecting people's time and also about not adding too much organizational complexity. Just Donna Morris, who's the head of uh, HR at Walmart, we did a case, speaking of subtraction, we did a case on her way, when was this, 2012, 2013, when they had gotten rid of employee performance evaluations, they got rid of them because they just thought it was a bizarre conversation that had nothing to do with regular feedback that should happen on a regular basis. And so now she's head of HR at Walmart. And I, was, I did a Zoom call with her about three or four months ago. And I said, so tell me about Walmart. And she said, the thing I can't believe is how simple it is for, I mean, it's the biggest private employer in the United States. So she said, and, and this is, I, I believe in hierarchy, but not too much. Remember, there's eight levels from a store manager to the CEO. That's pretty good for that. A lot better than Facebook or, or mm -hmm. Meta, it's called now, which has got something like 12, 13 levels and has got problems with that. But there are organizations that just have the discipline. The same thing with Amazon in terms of how they use people's times in meetings are sort of mm -hmm. famous for that. So I've had friends who are senior executives go to work for Amazon and they get trained how to write, and how to run meetings in ways they've never been trained before. And you talk a lot about how it's important for leaders to go around a couple of the different levels of the organization to gather yes. intelligence, right? And the mystery CEO, right? right. The, one, the one that dresses up like a Home Depot employee and, and has to unload trucks and so forth. Well, well, that's that's our friend Carl Liebert, uh -huh. who he wasn't a mystery. He just came in and worked with him and told him who he was. Mm -hmm. There's a bunch of actually supply chain type problems. He was head of supply chain for all of Home Depot. And they were having problems with how quickly things were being unloaded after they were delivered to stores. And so he and his head engineer, they, they would go work the night shift about once a month from midnight to seven and, and see what was going on when they're unloading boxes. And, and actually, what he figured out, it's pretty, it, 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 they, they'd have all sorts of problems because they wouldn't get the inventory on the floor. It'd be stacking up. The, the, the root cause of that, from talking to Carl, is about 20% of the time when they unloaded a box, it would not be full. There'd be missing inventory, say missing couple pan, cans of paint. So what happens when there's a missing few cans of paint? It's shrink, lost or stolen inventory that is counted against the store manager's incentives. So the store manager damn well is not gonna, is gonna make sure they open every box and check what's in there. And so what Carl's job was, was to figure out up the supply chain, the suppliers. Of course, it was just a few suppliers who were doing that constantly to figure out which suppliers were causing that problem and to 
deal with those suppliers and to make it so that uh, the store managers had confidence that they didn't have to count everything in every box and make sure that they weren't getting screwed on the incentive system. But to me, that's a good example. And where that comes from, this is the L6 strategy. This is called, there's a guy named Todd Park, one of the heroes of the book. Todd Park with his brother, Ed, started a company called Athena Health that they software company they sold for a fortune. Then, then he was involved in working for the Obama administration. He was the CTO of the Obama administration and actually led an effort to fix Obamacare. Mm -hmm. And, and he figured out that if he's talked to the top executives, that they actually didn't know what the problem was. And he had to go down six levels mm -hmm. to the people who actually made the software. And he figured out two things. One, they knew what the problem was, but two, they weren't talking to each other and nobody knew how the whole system fit together. So that's, he started working on weaving things together at the L6 level. But yes, that, that's one of those stories is you kind of go down to the, where the people actually know how the work is done. And, and then you've got to get uh, enough trust and psychological safety from them, because if they're afraid of you, they're not going to teach you anything. They're just going to keep you in the dark and say, yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. And then behind your back and say, oh, let's just wait for that asshole to go away. And we're not going to tell him anything. Well, I mean, this sort of blind spot of leaders not understanding what's happening a couple <laughs> layers down. I mean, that also applies to identifying assholes. In the oh, oh, yeah. Oh, right? yeah. How is it that assholes can hijack the immune system of the organization? I mean, you talk about the kiss up, kick down. Oh, oh yeah, the classic. Things, right? yeah. Because, I mean, to me, it's, we know about the harmful consequences. We know how it can degrade performance. Well, 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 not, well, not, well, not always, but. Well, well, well so, so, I mean, it, it is complicated because many of those behaviors are also behaviors that are rewarded in mm -hmm. different environments. I'll actually tell you, what, what's, what's the name of the faculty member here who worked for the, with the NFL a lot? Oh God, how can I forget his name? The sports guy. I'll think of his name in a second. Anyhow, so we used to have an executive program here where the National Football mm. League would bring in folks to develop them as executives. So I'm teaching the no asshole rules to, to a group of folks, most of whom were recently retired NFL players. Mm -hmm. And I tried to explain the no asshole rule. They were so confused <laughs> because, I mean, it's all about aggression and knocking the person yeah, down. Yeah. And, and, and you don't do that to your team. But there was a lot of confusion about, aren't you going to tamp down aggressiveness? So mm -hmm. that, that was part of it. But to me, there's a whole bunch of confounds here. One confound is, yes, the kiss up, kick down people, that the people who get ahead often are very skilled at hiding it from the boss who mm -hmm. can see it. But the other problem, which I think is a larger problem, which we've talked about a little bit, is what happens to people in power. This is Dr. Keltner's research, that for many people when they get in power, this idea that Dr. Keltner's research shows that uh, when people are in power, it's just disinhibition is the thing. Mm -hmm. So people start just saying what's naturally on their minds so they don't have as much of as a filter. And the people who are naturally nasty are going to act that way. And, and as we said, this doesn't happen to all leaders. So there's also the effect of having people in power that they can turn in, in, into jerks just because of the disinhibition that comes with it. But, and then there's the problem that, that there are some occupations that I talked about, football players, also lawyers, is that, well, you look at the effect of defense attorneys, some of them can be pretty nasty. And then the problem is, well, how do you turn it off? And in fact, I, I think this is mentioned in the book. So when I wrote the no asshole rule, it was not an accident that my wife was managing partner of a large law firm. <laughs> Mary Cranston was a chair and she was managing partner of a law firm called Pillsbury Madison Sutro. They were the yeah. first women to run an AMLA 100 law firm. So that was quite an adventure. And one day my wife comes home from work and she says, the secret to law firm management is knowing how to turn your assholes on mm -hmm. and off because you want to yeah. be aggressive in, in court, but you don't want them to come in depositions and stuff, but you don't want them kicking the shit out of the staff and the junior associates. And that was one of the things she'd have to give lawyers feedback about and sometimes withhold some money from them as well. Well, it's also, I mean, these NFL players, I mean, part of what makes them so fascinating is that they do have the ability to flip on and off their aggression, right? So when they're off the field at home, they're normal people for the most part, right? And so... Yeah, you know. yeah most of them. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that might be true of college professors too. There's some ones who are crazy <laughs> right. too. But That's, that's but, right. In class, as soon as class is over, it's like, hey. Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Cold calling stops and 
the, the kindness begins. That's right. But let's talk about what assholes are not. I mean, I was talking to Amy Edmondson and... Oh, she's she, fabulous. And she's, I think, a little confused by how her term, psychological safety, yeah. has come to almost mean the opposite. Right? Well, so, so to her, psychological safety, she keeps saying it's not the power of nice. It's not yes. the power of nice. And so I think that for some people, they find the... I guess the complainer or the the person who's pointing out problems right. or challenging right. arguments or questioning the status quo, let's say, that person right. is an asshole. And anybody who criticizes me is an exactly. asshole. Exactly. Right? And so this is why I think that if it's almost like a pretty good indicator that when someone quotes your book, uh, that probably an asshole. One of my lines, and I believe this even more strongly than, than when I first wrote The No Asshole I mean, Not World. that they read your book, but they quote the title. Oh, oh, oh a, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Sometimes they just quote the title. But is, is that, in fact, there's a, I had a great experience where a guy who is described as an asshole in the book, actually an incident with my wife, who she decided not to work for him because she found out after mm -hmm. she got the job offer and actually accepted it that she was an asshole. So she withdrew it. Mm -hmm. He came up to me and he told me how great the book was and how he tried to live by it. And right. This guy is identified. He's actually in the book. But to me, one of the key mantras because of the self-awareness issue, it's really difficult, is that if you're an asshole, you should be fast to label yourself as one and slow to label mm -hmm. others. Because and, and the Amy Edmondson thing is perfect, and I'm a huge fan of Amy. I'm, I've known her since she's a graduate student, and we had a shared mentor in J. Richard Hackman. So we're pretty close. And she has this great research on nurses about what would – if she talked about one of, what would be an ideal nurse – be somebody who was a noisier complainer, who was pointing out other people's mistakes, who, who was talking openly about their mistakes. I mean, people like that, they're, they're a little bit of a pain in the ass maybe, but that's the kind of person who would like, when the surgeon makes a mistake, I want the nurse to feel safe to tell the doctor that they've made a mistake. And Amy talks about this notion that the ideal nurse is the opposite. They always do what they're told. They never question anybody. They never admit they made a mistake. And so this question of what it means in context is important. But to me, somebody who at least I would say is an asshole is somebody who doesn't just do job-related stuff. It's personal. It's done at the wrong time. It's even downright cruel. And back to my earlier point, it's really important. And, you know, one of my other sayings is assholes are us, that the hallmark of people who engage in bullying behavior is people rarely see it and see it in, in themselves. And they just look at the numbers. It's something like 35% of Americans say they've been bullied or seen bullying in the workplace. And it's something like one-tenth of one percent of Americans say they've been a bully in the workplace. It depends on the survey, maybe one half of one percent. Right. Now, the other question would be around performance, uh, right? So I think part of what the message in a lot uh, of your books uh, is that organizations have to balance creating a workplace that is humane yeah. and performance. And so are these compliments or is there a tension at some level, right? I mean, is there... Yeah, well, so it is interesting that... I, I mean, we want to believe, right? No, we, no, want, no, we want to no, believe. Well, I, I have a different perspective on that. And, and I get that there's... And I get that we do need performance and stuff that, from my perspective, that I don't care whether there's a trade-off or not. I want both. And to me, both are performance. And that's just where I start. And, and it's funny because my, my late dissertation advisor, Robert Alcon, is very much the person who talked to me about this. And for me, and maybe this goes back to uh, my perspective, if you're a winner and an asshole, it, it, you're still a loser in my book. And, I, and maybe that's a massive oversimplification. But to me, those are both indicators of performance. And I'm not saying, given the choice of a surgeon who's a really nice person and is incompetent at the job, versus somebody who's competent in the job is a nasty person. I'm going to take the person who is who is nasty but is good at their job every time, and so, and so are most people. But when I had the choice of having surgery at the Cleveland Clinic versus Stanford, and I had to fly over to the Cleveland Clinic, in addition to the fact that they had a risk-adjusted mortality rate, it was 2% at Stanford, 1% at Cleveland, I actually met both my surgeons, and my surgeon I was going to have at Stanford Essentially, his assistant told me he was an asshole before I got to him, and he might have been very good, but everything about him, he kept me waiting for two hours. He was not very nice. And then I met Mark Gillenoff, whose name I will use, who was both competent. There's a lot of signs. People at Cleveland Clinic tell me if I needed surgery, I'd go to Mark. But he also, he's like a man. He's, he's like a real, he's a good guy. And, and that goes back to the different reward systems. At the time I had surgery at the Cleveland Clinic, Toby Castro was CEO of the Cleveland Clinic. He built the modern Cleveland Clinic. And before that, he ran the group of heart surgeons. And he said, we've always had a philosophy 
at the Cleveland Clinic that if you are not a good and civilized colleague, it doesn't matter how great a surgeon you are, you aren't going to make it here. And in fact, he said he was worried when they hired Mark Gillenoff because he was like a went to Harvard and everything like that, that he would be somebody who was a jerk. But it turns out Mark's actually a, a pretty good guy. But to me, that's like a, a cultural difference. And uh, and I'm sure the guy at Stanford um, at Stanford had done a perfectly good job, but I could just imagine if he made a mistake. Back to psychological safety, mm -hmm. I don't think any nurse would call him out or even any uh, resident. But you know, I think that if Toby made a mistake, I think that not Toby, Mark Gillenoff, I think that the nurse or the resident would have called him out. But look, I mean, I'm, I'm an economist. I want to know what, what are the conditions that would. Mm -hmm cause these to be in alignment and cause them to be in conflict. I mean, look, we know that, yeah. for instance, slavery was profitable, right, right. right? But it wouldn't be profitable in software engineering, right? It was profitable for picking cotton, yeah, right? right? Or is there something about the nature of the production process? So is the idea economy in some way different, say, from manufacturing? Do we have technologies of administration that are different now? Do we have a more competitive labor market? Is there something that would lead to a, I don't know, an asshole tax, which is well, higher well, now than it might well, be. Well, well, I mean, that that might be true. There's just um, probably more legal risk for, mm -hmm. at least for the bottom, for the very worst behavior. There might be some more legal risk. I mean, we sign these things saying we're not going to be bullies when we take mm -hmm. our sexual harassment training at Stanford and things like that, which does it legalistically. But I, I would still argue, and I go back to my original point, that I think that's one of the problems that economists have is that they focus so much on money. And I think money's important, don't get me wrong, that it, it, it sometimes blinds them to other elements of human performance or human achievement. And to me, that's not- oh, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not talking normatively, I'm talking predictively. Yeah. If, in other words, if I were to present you with two companies, uh, uh, would you be able to empirically predict which one has a higher tolerance for assholes? Would you say, okay, it's, oh, it's, oh, one, oh, oh, yeah, it's that, one that has monopoly power. It's one that has a less competitive labor market. It's one that has, what would be some of the- well, maybe a more competitive, I would say a more competitive labor market because because you don't want to mm. drive them out. I mean, even during the pandemic, when there was really a labor shortage. Right. So could, when, it's hard, when it's hard to recruit, then you have to create then an You pretend yeah, to be exactly. nicer. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, yeah. <laughs> Certainly, I think that that would be part of it. And even like our fast food restaurants in, mm -hmm. in, in the area have raised wages and they have better benefits and, and so forth. But even let's take and if you want to go this direction. I mean, there's some pretty good evidence when you go across large samples of organizations. In fact, fast food, there's a large scale study that was done of this, that when people had bosses who were bullies, they not only were more likely to quit, they were more likely to actually steal more food. So that's a classic sort of financial outcome. And, and in general, I mean, there, and there's two things here with the, to go back to the assholeness. One is, does being an asshole help you get ahead? Well, in an I win, you lose sort of environment like old Microsoft, that actually might be true. Like, I would be ecologically rational. Yeah, 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 yeah. If, or, you're, or, if you're maximizing or, 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 advancement. Yeah, or and it actually might be rational. But the problem is the other way, which it's not economically rational, is, and this is, I think, where Jeff Effer and I get a little bit of an argument, is that he'll focus on, you know, I win, you lose, and we'll help you get ahead in squishing mm -hmm. people and feeling like mm -hmm. you're the, the alpha male or female, or that's how you get ahead. But the problem is, is that if you look at, and now I would say we're running tens of thousands of studies, and that might be conservative, that there's no evidence that that when you are some, when you leave people feeling demeaned, de-energized, and disrespected, I would define that consistently. That helps you run a more effective team or organization. Mm -hmm. There's just in every experimental or correlational study that that we can find or that's been done. There's almost no situation in which it's good. There there might be time when showing toughness or disapproval might work. So we're talking about Barry Stodd Berkeley. He's got this great study. It finally got published. It's so long. I think 30 years ago, Barry and I started having a conversation about strategic temper tantrums and when they worked. <laughs> and, and, and essentially what he did was, with some other folks, was that they had a tape recorder in the locker room in, half, in basketball games, college and high school basketball games. And, and essentially the question was, what happens when the coach yells at the team? And, it's, and the finding, this is a massive oversimplification, is the coaches who yell at them all the time didn't help because right. he or she's just an asshole. They're just yelling at us again. Mm -hmm. Or the ones who never yelled, that didn't help you. The best thing to do is to yell at them every now and then. Mm -hmm. Because when you get yelled at, I don't know, every now and then, 
it's, well, the attribution is, oh, it might be something about me. So you might actually listen. So that's a case where there might be some strategicness. And there might be some parenting insight there. Yeah, yeah there might be. Yeah, and I think to, since we're in the Bay Area and Steve Kerr has been a pretty effective coach, I think mm. he's pretty good at that. He's pretty good at, at rather than being at adjusting mm. to the situation because he will get on them sometime, but mostly he's supportive. Every now and then he'll go after one of his players. Right now he's going after Draymond Green for being, well, a threatening asshole as he deserves probably. But to me, that's one of those sort of things. But on the whole, the, the evidence, we could have some argument about when being a jerk helps you get ahead. And it depends on the game, old Microsoft versus new Microsoft. I think that the, the jerks got ahead in the old system, but not in the new system. But when you're working for somebody like that, there's just no evidence that it, that it helps the underlings or, mm -hmm. or yelling at customers, except in some maybe very rare situations. Well, I love the Southwest story where they took the guy over to American Airlines. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> the former head of HR told, yeah. told me that... <laughs> They said, all right, you're a pain in the ass customer. We're taking you over, over to American Airlines. <laughs> right? yeah. yeah. Well, one of the things that you talk about in the book, I talk about this in my future of work class, is the public health consequences of bad employment environments. Oh. And it's huge. Oh. Well, well I mean, we can, bad employment environments in general, but yes, when you have a fear-based sort of mm -hmm. environment, it's bad. Well, we're getting to psychological safety too. It's, you get bad nursing, you get ba bad doctors, you get bad dynamics and teams. But you get heart attacks, you get strokes, you get oh, early, I mean, early death, right? Yeah, yeah. so yeah, having an asshole boss is not good for your physical health. I mean, the other thing, back to the, the friction book, since you're talking about the future of work, and this is in the, our coordination chapter about coordination neglect, is that when I think of the U.S. healthcare system, and I'm not an economist, but some of my best friends are economists, and it's sort of a story of friction and fragmentation. So you got your silos you're talking about. And you've got it for incentives, complexity. I mean, you just go down the list. Well, specialization, mm -hmm. where just the ability to communicate and coordinate is just impossible because this in so many systems, because it's broken. And as we were discussing, so much of that weight falls mm -hmm. on patients. It's just crazy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'll be teaching in the Stanford Medical School starting next year. So it's Really? Yeah. And uh, in that chapter, you also said, maybe we need more generalists. Right. Maybe we've, in some systems, we maybe give too Well, we much. need at least enough. So, so It's I, frequency dependent, right? You can have too many generalists. I, 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 I like that idea about generalists versus specialists. And I'm not a believer in, in, in even this thing that McKinsey used to talk about T-shaped mm -hmm, people, yeah. that, that you have the person who has both the, all the interpersonal skills and the broad thing and is deep in one thing. I actually believe in T-shaped teams or organizations. Mm -hmm. Like everybody doesn't have to be a, a generalist. You just need enough generalists to glue the thing together. Mm -hmm. and, and actually, great specialists are absolutely fabulous as long as there's somebody there who understands how the system fits together. So I'm not like completely opposed to specialists who don't care about anybody else. I just want them to be in a system that glues their behavior together. And you also said that the optimal number of assholes is zero. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm not. Well, it is interesting because as long as they're not the boss, right? As long as they're. I, I said that in that book, but, but yeah. in, in the sort of sequel to that, the asshole survival guide, I backed off that. In it, in fact, people used to write me a note because I had this argument that maybe the optimal number of assholes was one sort of low status asshole to show you how not to behave. But you, and, and maybe yeah. that's, and I think this is an empirical question, which is not resolved. Well, you use that study about if there's. And this contradicts the kind of broken windows hypothesis. The idea was that if there's just a one guy who's littering or something, then everybody can use that person as a test case, somebody that they can criticize or rally around, right? Yeah, yeah. So people are less likely to litter into a setting that has one piece of litter than none at all. But once you get to five or six, mm -hmm. then they say, oh, the norm is I can just throw my stuff here. Mm -hmm. So that's that. But having thought about that, maybe that's still true, but I... The, the other literature which came out you know, since 2007 when I wrote that book is the literature about how contagious nasty behavior is makes me worry that just even having one might be dangerous. But one that I really do feel clearly about is that if you have a situation where the people are assholes or the people get ahead, that's where you've got a problem because you're sending a signal that's how to behave. Yeah. But oftentimes the leader doesn't know that they're assholes. So I guess the final question I have for you is as a leader, as a CEO or yeah. leader of a team, how do you build a, a system of awareness? How do you create an asshole -ometer or a friction <laughs> frictionometer? Like how do you 
I mean, wouldn't it be great to have a dashboard that says, okay, right. here are the bottlenecks, here are the pain points, here are the places where things are too easy, here are the places where things are too hard, here's where we have the asshole coordinates, right? Right, here, right. How do they set up some kind of intelligence? Well, well I think, I mean, first of all, we're not, we haven't talked much about AI, but one thing that you actually could do, since, I mean, there's people here at Stanford and CS and the business school who do research where they do textual analysis, mm -hmm. and you could... Just even analyze emails, and you ah, unless say, they only communicate face to face. Right, which they, a lot of they, do. A lot of they, harassers only face to face. Yeah. Right, well, now you can even analyze our Zoom transcripts. I mm -hmm. suspect that the big you can even get that Big Brother. So I'm not advocating that. But to me, some of the other more standard indicators, which might not just be assholeness. Well, if you're getting more turnover, if you're getting well a situation where there's more unlawful behavior where, well, things are under the surface and then they blow up. That, to me, is a really good sign, where there's silence followed by rage. That would be yeah. a sign. But I would almost always start with, I think turnover is a really good yeah. in indicator. And, and one thing that I'd put a, in a good word for, which um, a lot of organizational theorists, and this gets down to the L6 thing we were talking about, a lot of organizational theorists are not so sure about, especially managers. I just took my sexual harassment training at mm. Sanford just yeah. over the weekend, and they were telling me how bad gossip is. Well, gossip actually has a function in organization. Mm, yeah. And the function is that it brings out information that is not captured by formal systems. And 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 being in touch with, as a leader with the gossipers. Scuttlebutt. Is, is scuttlebutt. And so one of the CEOs I know, what she said that she used to always do, that she, and to somebody who did very well getting ahead in situations where women didn't always get ahead, is she would try to make friends with the people who were known gossips and complainers. And she said for two reasons. One, they, they tend to give you the negative information first. And the second one was a little bit more maybe insidious or whatever. Is she said, well, if you could give that person a different perspective that everything didn't suck, that sometimes you could actually even change the gossip in, in the system. And I don't know. I think she might have been overly optimistic about that. But the, this idea about in addition to having maybe some more formal measures I, and and. and some of the old Gallup engagement surveys might also give you an indication if you do sort of like pulse surveys. I think Adobe and organizations do that sort of thing. So that that might give you an indication too. But I would start with, I for me, the Microsoft system story is almost the best story. It's who gets ahead. Is it somebody who does good work and helps others succeed? Or is it somebody who uh, gets ahead by stopping on on others on the on the way to the top? And, and one way you can tell that is when they move to another job and they move up. Do a bunch of people want to come with them, or does, does everybody just relieve mm -hmm. that they're gone? Yeah. Well, look, there's so much more we could talk about, including the role of stories. I think that was a well, we, we part told of plenty of stories. Yeah. yeah. And this method. And I lied. I have one more question. In business schools and engineering schools, right, we teach people to be leaders and, and managers. Mm -hmm. But it seems like organizational design, it's like an orphan stepchild, right? That's a I great mean, question. We have courses on leadership. We have courses on organizational behavior. And we have courses on microeconomics. Right. But, but where is, I mean, organizational design is kind of falls well, between a bunch of stools. It's not sociology. It's not economics. That's a great, that's a great, I, I think that's a great. So I have some optimism that there's some movement it's kind of reemergence of the old field of organizational yeah. design. And just to name a couple of scholars, Melissa Valentine, I chaired her tenure committee, so I'm biased. Mm -hmm. And a lot of her tenure, and so she's also at the intersection of AI and organizational design. And, and a lot of her tenure letters was she may be the leader in the reemerging mm -hmm. field of organizational design. And so there, there is some movement. There's a guy named Paul Adler at University of Southern California, also very good at organizational design. So I think that there is some hope for organizational design being a field. And I am seeing some better sort of research. Also, Amy Edmondson of psychological safety fame. One thing when you work backwards from psychological safety is, is it isn't just the behavior of the supervisor and how the supervisor treats the, the lower level employees. That, that a lot of her solutions do end up having an organizational yeah. design solution. And it's no accident. Amy started as a real engineer. So she probably talked about this. Working for Bucky Fuller, that was her first job out of school. Did she right. talk about that? Yeah, well, in the book, I remember reading it. But, yeah. but it's like the Alcoa story, right? So just by making employee safety the number one yeah, priority, it had all of these sort of ripple effects, right? 
Yeah, well, well that, that is interesting because, I mean, so now, now we're back to applied stuff. So that was the, the Alcoa story. And then and, 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 and then back to Todd Park, my, my, my sort of hero of the book. So he's got, well, it's a pretty big startup. It's in 17 states. It's probably worth about $15 billion. He and his brother have this company called Devoted Health. And they see this relationship between love and logistics. So if you start with, well, if somebody talks to a patient, the question is, what if was their fa- your father or your mother, somebody you mm-hmm. actually loved? What sort of system would you want to design to build that interaction so there's one-stop shopping? And so that person created, faced less friction and frustration and also got the services they need? That to add, that's a, that, that's a design constraint that then leads them to build the system to support the employee. And, and when we interviewed him, I said, so how many uh, people are going online? He said, some people go online, but mostly these are people who want to talk to somebody. Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons we want to talk to somebody, you know, to sort of end, that, that uh, this notion that coordination is better when there's a generalist and a sea of specialists. I think the frontline employees in his company are generalists who understand the pieces and how they fit together. And I think that's what you'd want for somebody that you loved is for have them not to go crazy, but to have one place to go. Yeah. Like the orchestra conductor, right? Yeah. Okay. We need a little more bass over here. Okay. Well, Bob, thanks so much. For oh, it's good to- Here's a book. It's called the friction project, but gosh, we got so many others. Good boss, bad boss. The Asshole Survival Guide, I, I don't have that one with me. I, I should have brought you up. That, right? But No Asshole Rule and Ideas That Work and Knowing Doing Gap. All these Thank books. you so much for yeah. the it was, it was delightful. Yeah. Thank you. Let's do it again. All right. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast produced by University FM. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review in your favorite listening app. To listen to our other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.